Welcome to the Dislocation Podcast, where we discuss innovation in real estate. I'm David Friedlander. I'm Dror Pollig. And today, in line with our new uh, Dislocation format, we're going to discuss some of the stories that we found interesting over the last week, or in this case, over the last two or three weeks since our last episode. And uh, the main topics for today are demographic changes and their impact on the real estate industry, a few different figures that were published over the last couple of weeks, uh, then construction technology or innovations in the world of construction and the possibility of real change over there. And lastly, recent developments in the space as a service market, which seems to continue to heat up with more news. So uh, jumping straight ahead into demographics, one tweet I found interesting, I think it was last week from uh, Conrad Hackett, who is the, I guess, a senior director and demographer at Pew Research. And he pointed out that uh, in the year 2000, there were only 150,000 people aged 100 years or older on Earth. And uh, by the end of this uh, century, there's going to be 21 million of them. So it's really becoming a, a large demographic group. Uh, just made me think that, you know, we're all talking about millennials and, and other groups, obviously still bigger than the, than the 100 year old group, but that, that really, really old people are becoming uh, a sizable, a sizable uh, demographic. And that would probably have some interesting implications for real estate developers and design and, and, and other things that need to go into buildings. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also interesting about what you know who is absorbing those populations because i don't mm -hmm. think it, it's not it's not like a it's not like that's happening uniformly mm -hmm. across the world um probably five million out of these are in japan or something or yeah, seven. Totally. and you know um I, I ran across something from the un a few years ago the mm -hmm. overall population of the 49 least developed countries is growing today at nearly twice the rate of the rest of the developing world yeah so you know, you're getting the majority of the, the net population increase coming from the, you know, coming from developing countries. And then, you know, and then meanwhile, the, all of the, um, you know, I saw in the U.S. is actually experiencing the lowest population growth in like almost 80 years uh, at like point, uh, I think 0.7 percent. So, you know, the, the developed, the developed countries are, you know, getting, getting old and then the mm -hmm. developing ones are getting, you know, are, are, are young. And that's, I mean, that ties into the second figure that I, that I read this week. It was an article, an article in Curb, uh, focusing on women living alone. It, it's based on statistics from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, uh, stating that in the U.S., more than 25% or so of households are single person households as yeah, of think, two yeah. years ago. Right. And in urban areas, places like New York City, that figure is estimated to be something around half or even more than half of all households. And uh, the interesting comparison that they drew was that in the 19th century and early 20, 20th century, most single-person households consisted of men, mostly men living alone. And today, actually, the majority of them are women. So 54% or higher uh, of all single-person households are female. Uh, which I guess explains part of the of the reason that the population isn't growing. I mean, more and more people are living alone, not getting married, not having children, uh, and for better or worse, we need women in order to uh, reproduce, at least at this point. Um, so I guess that's that's the other side of the growing uh, the, the growing demographic of old people, uh, both 
in itself and also relative to the the number of younger people in the in developing countries right well it'll be interesting to see how you know there's a lot of you know we we, we talk about co-living and mm-hmm. so you know so many like co-living is really squarely focused on really housing singles i don't think there's there's much of a pretense that it's going to be going you know for you know, I think couples are an afterthought and families are, yeah, are there is much. pretense, but yeah, it doesn't look like there's actual uh, product development that is uh, aiming to solve uh, problems for younger couples or families uh, of any kind. But I mean, this was, it'd be interesting to see if, if it moves into other demographics where there mm-hmm. are huge single populations. Uh, you know, this is, this is, this is a big focus of something that I've been involved with at various times. Um, uh, Citizens Housing and Planning Council (CHPC)'s Making mm-hmm. Room uh, Initiative, which mm-hmm. it really explores the mismatch between housing stock and and demographic demographic trends. And where know, do things stand at the moment? So this is focused on New York City or other places as well. Well, I mean, it's definitely a, a national conversation, but I think it's 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 um it's it's endemic wherever you go. I mean. 76% of the U.S. housing stock is single-family housing, yet, you know, it, 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 the figure that I always found heard was 28% of the population is a single-person household. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so right off the bat, um, you know, you, you have this pretty, pretty, pretty massive mismatch. There's more people living in shared housing situations, which is sort of the, you know, kind of the, the hacked way of accommodating for singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in urban environments, you know, still the majority of, of housing units that are coming online are like, you know, like the, the kind of the, uh, you know, new, new development are like, you know, multiple two, bedroom. Yeah. Two bedroom apartments. Luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And high end, um, which, uh, I mean, this might, might, might be a segue to talk about, um, one startup that's actually trying to, uh, you know, kind of alleviate improve revolutionize <laughs> yeah um <laughs> it, 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 I'm, I'm talking around it there's a there's a a, a startup called uh, resi and they they just uh announced that they're going to spend 10 million dollars buying up leases uh basically resi is doing a it's a complete online platform that uh does the you know sales and leasing process all in kind of one seamless application and they're buying up ten million dollars worth of leases, uh, presumably, uh, you know, absorbing sort of the, the glut of of new units that are coming online. There's a um, uh, rents have been dropping, uh, inventory has been increasing. Uh, there's a record high of um, concessions in new uh, new properties. Um, now. I, I think this is actually a great problem to solve. Uh, the you know the leasing process, uh, you know, going through a broker or going through Craigslist is you know just it's super arcane and and inefficient. And you know having having it all streamlined along, uh, you know, on a on a on a on a on an integrated digital platform is is a, is a is a great great problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. So to make sure I understand, yeah. let's kind of backtrack a little, yeah. just to make sure like, that we we explain their model clearly to our to our listeners. So these guys they raised money yep. 
venture capital money, yeah, probably, 30, right? 30, You're 30, saying 30 mil as far as I know, yeah. Okay, 30 million dollars, 10 million of which they plan to use in order to actually buy leases, so basically to sign leases themselves right. on apartments to right. take that obligation. Right. And then to sublet or kind of roll those leases onto individual customers through a streamlined online process that is uh, allegedly better, simpler, more efficient uh, than what is already out there. Uh, and presumably making some kind of margin on top of that that, that actually makes the whole thing. Presumably they're wide. taking inventory off of landlords and developers buying at a discount, taking the marketing and sales process off of their plate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, taking unused inventory off their plate. So, I mean, it's a, it's a big win for, for the landlords and developers, uh, you know, who might be having trouble getting rid of, you know, or, you know, leasing out units. Mm -hmm. And then as far, I mean, as, as far as I know, Resi, Resi takes on the risk of, of filling those, but they, yeah. So I, I would imagine, you know, for taking that risk on, they, they get, they get a discount and then they, you know, they pocket the premium. Well, I, I appreciate the audacity of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say, I mean, it's probably a fine line because in order to do that, you need the market to be soft enough for landlord to, to basically play ball and be willing to give you their whole inventory for a discount. But at the same time, you want the market to still be robust enough to, so that you can roll this inventory uh, well, I mean, the, the, the market is softening. The, the number of new leases in Manhattan fell 17.5% uh, mm -hmm. year over year. Uh, that was something that uh, I think that came out in the Element Report recently. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I mean, while, while it's a really good problem to solve, I don't know whether the reason, you know, the rents are, are dropping, why there's higher inventory is necessarily because of the lack of digitization. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't want to. So it's a supply demand kind of short term, medium term. Yeah, well, just bringing dynamic. it back, bringing back into uh, demography. Um, the, you know, the in in June 2018, the average rent for in New York City was almost 3,600 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, I think the median household income in uh, across the boroughs is around 70 grand. Uh, now, I mean, there's there's definitely more discrete data. Um, you know, if you go on the Upper East Side, the you know the household income is going to be a lot higher. Sure, but. Um, you know, the, the, the big problem is that, you know, things are, things are too expensive where they're, you know, developers are creating units that people simply can't afford and, you know, at least in mass. And, um, you know, I was looking just to, you know, I was just kind of curious, there was a new development that I, that caught my eyes a little while ago called the lanes. And they were basically developing micro, uh, micro two and three bedroom units. And I think they were starting, I think there's like, you know, it was around 23, 2,500 for a two bedroom, if I'm not mistaken. And, and wow, where is that? It That's was really in, cheap. It's in Long Island city. Okay. And they were like 500 or 550 square foot, two bedrooms. And then there was like, I don't know, it was like 700 square foot, three bedrooms. And they were going for 3,500 bucks. And I, it was kind of my contention that, you know, people are really interested in, 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 I mean, affordability leads the day. And, uh, and it came online, I think, in the spring. And I sorry, you said people are really interested. I didn't hear you there, and I'm not sure if it was recorded. People are, you know, affordable. You know, uh, to to quote um, uh, uh, someone over a uh, uh, panoramic interest, a developer mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Affordability is the amenity, mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, they're off they're offering new development for 
you know, for a three bedroom for under $4,000. And, um, and it just seemed like a really cool idea. And it's, you know, transit friendly, it's in Long Island city. And I looked at, I looked it up the, uh, the other day and all but two units in this new development had been leased out. How do you explain that? Well, it's just, it's a, it's a, you know, kind of a, a product market fix or fit, uh, it's it's so the rooms were too small for the i mean people that need two bedrooms assuming they're young families it wasn't convenient for them no the price the price was right the price and the location were right mm-hmm. uh, and you know the 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 glut of inventory has has most is mostly to do with the the fact that it's not serving what people's that the units that are coming online are not necessarily the units that people need or can afford Okay, so we need more units focused on uh, females that are living alone and on old people that are living alone. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and generally on single people that are living alone. Uh, but to, to bring it back to Resi, so those guys, yeah. I think one way, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear how they explain it and defend it, you know, when, yeah. when they're being questioned. But I mean, one way I would, uh, it can be justified is that, you know, they want to set a new standard in the industry. And in order to do that, they need to have enough inventory to kind of play with. Right. And they're willing to burn money, basically, in order to control that inventory. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's a, 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 yeah, a legitimate it, strategy. I mean, it, and at the end of the day, they, they, have, they have, they have, you know, it's, they have, they have, it's not like even if they don't lease up as fast as they want them to. Mm-hmm. It's not as though they're going to have some sort of useless asset. In no, for sure, and may, and maybe I, and I don't know what it means that they're buying the leases from the landlord. They might have some, you know, ability to kind of exit or share the risk or kind of. Right. I mean, they're not necessarily going to be stuck with them forever. Yeah. And we're talking residential leases. So, I mean, at max they're signing for a year, I would say, or I don't know if longer. Uh, actually, they might be signing for longer because otherwise, that if if things go well, then the landlord will just take the take the unit back uh but what i was saying is that it might be a viable strategy to really kind of bring their new standard to the market and then assume that the market will have to kind of fall into line and have to go through them uh at better terms later but it also means that they're probably not planning to make any money on these first uh right on the first 10 million dollars that they burn on leases unless they get really lucky yep uh, i guess we'll just have to to, to keep an eye on it yeah uh, the last demographic figure that uh, that kind of popped up this week was uh, from the the CEO of Autodesk. So they are the makers of AutoCAD and Revit, and I think a bunch of other uh, kind of standard construction and design software. Uh, and he was speaking at the Autodesk University event, which is something that they hold in London, I guess, once a year. And he said that by 2050, there will be two billion new people on the planet. Uh, which means that we have to build a thousand more buildings a day for the next 32 years in order to house them. Uh, I, I assume he's quoting a reliable source. I don't have it in front of me, uh, but it's really a staggering number. I mean, a thousand new buildings every day uh, with all the regulation, all the kind of rising costs that we have. Uh, what, what do you think are our, our chances to meet, uh, to meet this demand? Well, it, it, it reminds me of this, you know, people, People always throwing out like, oh, by 2050, 80% of the you, uh, of the world population is going to be living in cities. I, I I would like to know a little bit more, you know, like a little more discrete data. Where are those people growing? Because you know, in the with the, the urbanization figure, almost all of that population growth is happening in, in these like mega cities, like you know, Delhi and Lagos and 
Um, so what problem are we solving? Are we, are we solving, are we solving, you know, building up buildings in the U S or are we doing it in, in India, you know? Yeah. We're in China. Yeah. So, um, I also wonder how many buildings we're building a day currently. Um, cause that, you know, that, that figure sounds yeah, staggering. 3,000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, Actually, you're right. Uh, um, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe we need to slow production. I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I, uh, that, that number does sound, it sounds big. Um, you know, whether we're building, however, you know, whether we're building in Lagos or whether we're building in, you know, Topeka, Kansas, uh, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, I mean, I, I, I went, I, I saw this thing in, in, uh, what was it in CB insights and, you know, they, they claim that the, there's a U.S. there's a current ho- housing shortage of 3.7.3 million units currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anyone's going to argue with a straight face that that we don't need more uh, we, we don't need more housing units, that we don't need to uh, increase efficiency, that we need to, you know, uh, improve uh, st- business practices for, you know, for construction and development. All right. Well. So again, would be interesting to to watch, and that that brings me to a, to the next topic, which is uh, focusing a little more on the construction industry. Yeah. Uh, there was a piece on, on in Treehugger by uh, Lloyd Alter, looking at Katera and what they're doing. Katera is a kind of a startup focused on construction that basically consolidates the anything from design to sourcing, all the way down to kind of installation and construction of. Uh, of, of houses and of senior housing projects and I think small multifamily projects. And uh, through doing that, they create, like at least they claim to create like new kind of synergies, doing things faster, better, cheaper, uh, taking stuff that used to take a year and completing it in a month. And what Lloyd is saying is that, you know, it's very nice that they're doing that and it's a great idea, but it's not a new idea. And there are wonderful things that you can do on the supply side as they're doing, but actually the main problem in the construction industry is the demand is, he says, notoriously cyclical, at least in North America. Right. So if you put together these amazing machines and, you know, these streamlined processes, once there's a slowdown, you run into a problem. So there's a reason that things are so fragmented and it's very hard to, uh, to consolidate them. And uh, so, I mean, it's it's an interesting point. I'm not sure I agree with it. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, I mean, first because you know there are other industries that are very cyclical, uh, even automobiles, raw materials, heavy equipment. Some of these things actually relate to construction. In all of these industries, actually, there's much more R&D. The the production processes are much more advanced. There's much more productivity. Uh, so, I mean, it would be interesting to see how they handle these, this, uh, cyclicality, uh, but just by s- seeing that they exist and that they are more efficient, it kind of probably means that cyclicality alone is not, uh, doesn't explain the, the extreme fragmentation and, uh, and lack of productivity in the construction industry. Uh, how do you see the, how do you see things? I mean, I think you're, you're more of the construction guy here in this room. Yeah. I mean, Lloyd's a, Lloyd's a friend of mine and uh, I, I certainly see his point, and there's a. Um, I, I'm thinking back to a an Economist article from maybe a year ago or so, and it basically talked about just that. That uh, you know, the re- one of the reasons house pricing is is so high is because uh, you know it's it's really 
labor dependent mm-hmm. and there's you know a, a huge labor shortage going on right now and basically the reason we rely on labor versus automation is that uh you know you can you can you can hire and fire labor and you can't you can't just uh you know mothball a factory mm-hmm. uh, when when the when the market turn uh, turns down now i think we're kind of getting to a bit of a, an inflection point because the um you know uh, let's see this is again from cb insights i saw this, uh, you know home prices ro- uh, rose 6.2% in 2017 two times more than income and three times inflation one mm-hmm. for americans is severely rent burdened uh, paying more than 50% of their monthly income on housing uh so you know we're getting to the point where is it are the economics of of continuing Employing humans yeah uh, are are you know is it is it sustainable anymore or uh and and this is you know certainly katera's contention and you know a, a lot of the you know I'm, i'm definitely interested in the in the you know prefab modular world um uh you know a full stack modular uh casita blockable uh, uh factory os you know uh, to, to name uh, rad urban you know all these all these all these companies are banking on the fact that you know that that putting up large capital investment to improve efficiency long long term will you know that there's a sufficient there's a sufficient churn of of, of housing demand uh, and know. it will basically decrease the reliance on labor exactly yeah, yeah. Um, i mean the, the the i don't i don't i don't have it off the top of my head but the you know the 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 cost of labor i, I know that like new york city is the most expensive place to build in the world uh, it's like more mm-hmm. expensive than geneva you know um and uh and number number second most expensive place to build in the world is san francisco uh and in north america i think in general has the most the highest labor cost so you know like how long can we do this uh you know this kind of seasonal approach to uh to, to housing yeah to construction now i think there is a there is there is a middle ground you know there are people that are doing like you know panelization and you know maybe maybe houses are built you know 90% of the way and uh, uh or 80% of the way and and you still have labor as as part of it but um yeah i don't know if i i i, I think we have but even if you have it as part of it maybe less but even if not less at least it becomes much more efficient because it's it's basically like putting together a lego house right you get all the all the stuff you need at the right time and you just put it together right much less room for error or time wastage yeah i mean, I mean talk, talking about single family housing um I, i again i don't have this in front of me but you know there were there was a time in in the early 20th century people don't really think about it but you know a, a, a huge majority of houses were kid houses um the the most famous obviously is the the Sears home mm-hmm. uh and also i think like Levittown was uh you know one of the first you know Levittown is basically the first you know kind of car centric suburban sort of the the the, yeah. the the archetype of 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 most suburban suburban home. america yeah and their houses were all like this standard standardized uh you know standardized design uh so you know bringing bringing technological uh, you know the 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 autom- the autom- the automation and you know robotics and wh- whatnot the bringing those innovations to bear on on that model uh today would you know i think would would you know represent a, hu- a huge improvement in efficiency and and i would imagine uh drive prices down in the long run but it might mm-hmm. might take some money up front so to sum up i'd say this section 
even if uh, the cyclical nature is a kind of structural issue that prevented construction from consolidating and becoming more efficient so far today there are a few game changers automation AI that actually might make things different and might allow people that are willing to put up a significant capital upfront in order to develop the tools processes software uh, and general know-how and how to do these things to allow them to deliver things cheaper faster better uh, consistently even through cycles well put <laughs> excellent uh, we just have a few minutes so we'll do we'll run through some uh, some other sexy stuff that has been happening in the space as a service uh, sector that seems to be heating up i mean it's always heating up and it, it's in you know every other week we we, we go back to discussing it because there's always something new happening uh, so over the last 10 days or so so convene which is a space as a service or like amenity component uh, for uh for kind of high-end, high-quality office buildings raised $152 million from uh, Aramark's partners, Revolution Growth, but also from real estate companies such as Brookfield and uh, RxR. So they're expanding their offering, which is focused more on larger customers that, uh, that need either meeting space or kind of expansion space or temporary space, uh, mostly in the center of kind of, again, quality office buildings in the center of large cities. Uh, another thing that happened at the same time is that Breather, an operator of, uh, I'd say, a distributed network of uh, short-term spaces, uh, launched a new service called Month Plus, which uh, basically means that they're starting to provide proper office space for people that are staying, you know, for a month or beyond. So it's no longer about like a meeting for an hour or like an offsite for a day or two, but they're really taking their design and their other capabilities and starting to offer proper private workspaces and they've already piloted it with uh, clients like Spotify, Airbnb, Google, Apple. So again, kind of, it's no longer about co-working or extreme flexibility. It's becoming a little longer. Uh, and uh, the third thing we have to mention, we work as well in this context. So I was in Israel last week and, and actually in the local media, there was an interview with one of the senior execs of WeWork. Uh, which I will not name, just so you know, <laughs> I, don't, don't, I don't want to pick on, <laughs> on individuals, but he, he said something that we were said uh, often uh, up to a year and a half ago, and I was surprised to see it still being said. Uh, and he said, and I'm quoting word for word, we are a real estate company in the same way that Uber is a taxi company. We have no real estate and they don't have any taxis. And... Uh, and I found it, you know, quite, quite still perplexing because I mean, Uber indeed doesn't have any taxis uh, and it is like a, a proper network or aggregator and really a, a software powered kind of operation. And, and even them, I mean, they have to deal with a lot of real stuff, real inventory stuff, you know, with real people and drivers and stuff that happens in the physical world, including harassment and, and violence. Uh, but we work on the other hand to say that they have no, you know, that they have no real estate sounds funny because I think what he's trying to say is that they have no liability, basically, that they're completely flexible and, you know, they just flow with the demand. Uh, but actually, they, they have leases and I think about $18, $18 billion worth of, of obligations on that front. Uh, so to say that, you know, we, <laughs> we, we don't have any real estate, uh, I'm not sure how correct that is. And, and I, frankly, I don't really understand why they keep saying that. I mean, what is the purpose? It's clickbait. <laughs> I, well, negative clickbait. Uh, all right. So, I mean, that, that was my final point for today. Cool. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, so I mean, hopefully we can do this again next week. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank I've you. been, I am still actually, not just have been. I'm Dror Poleg. And I'm David Friedlander. Thank you and see you soon. Bye.